Chapter Ten of Starborn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Starborn by Andre Norton, Chapter Ten: The Dead Guardians. The spaceman spent a cramped and almost sleepless night. Although in his training on Terra, on his trial trips to Mars and the harsh lunar valleys, Raff had known weird surroundings and climates, inimical to his kind, he had always been able to rest almost by the exercise of his will. But now, curled up in his role, he was alert to every sound out of the moonless night, finding himself listening, for what he did not know. Though there were sounds in plenty, the whistling call of some night-bird, the distant lap-lap of water which he associated with the river curving through the long deserted city, the rustle of grass, as either the wind or some passing animal disturbed it. "'Not the best place in the world for a nap,' Sariki observed out of the dark as Raff wriggled, trying to find a more comfortable position. "'I'll be glad to see these bandage boys on the ground waving good-bye as we head away from them fast.' "'Those weren't animals they killed back on that island,' Raff brought out what was at the heart of his trouble. "'They wore fur instead of clothing.' Sariki's reply was delivered in a colourless, even voice. "'We have apes on Terra, but they are not men.' Raff stared up at the sky in which stars were sprinkled like carelessly flung dust-motes. "'What is a man?' he returned, repeating the classical question which was a debating point in all the space training centers. For so long his kind had wondered that. Was a man a biped with certain easily recognized physical characteristics? Well, by that ruling the furry things which had fled fruitlessly from the flames of the globe might well qualify. Or was man a certain level of intelligence, no matter what form housed that intelligence? They were supposed to accept the latter definition. Though, in spite of the horror of prejudice, Raff could not help but believe that too many Terrans secretly thought of man only as a creature in their own general image. By that prejudiced rule it was correct to accept the aliens as men with whom they could ally themselves, to condemn the furry people because they were not smooth-skinned, did not wear clothing, nor ride in mechanical transportation. Yet somewhere within Raff at that moment was the nagging feeling that this was all utterly wrong, that the Terrans had not made the right choice, and that now men were not standing together. But he had no intention of spilling that out to Sariki. "'Man is intelligence,' the Comtech was answering the question Raff had almost forgotten that he had asked the moment before. Yes, the proper conventional reply. Sariki was not going to be caught out with any claim of prejudice. "'Odd!' When Pax had ruled, there were thought police, and the cardinal sin was to be a liberal, to experiment, to seek knowledge. Now the wheel had turned, to be conservative was suspect. To suggest that some old ways were better was to exhibit the evil signs of prejudice. Raff grinned wryly. Sure, he had wanted to reach the stars, had fought doggedly to come to the very spot where he now was. So why was he tormented now with all these second thoughts? 
Why did he feel every day less akin to the men with whom he had shared the voyage? He had had wit enough to keep his semi-rebellion under cover, but since he had taken the flitter into the morning sky above the landing-place of the spacer, that task of self-discipline was becoming more and more difficult. "'Did you notice,' the Comtech said, going off on a new track, "'that these painted boys were not too quick about blasting along to their strong-box?' I'd say that they thought some bright rocket jockey might have rigged a surprise for them somewhere in there. Now that Sariki mentioned it, Raff remembered that the alien party who had gone into the city had huddled together, and that several of the black and white warriors had found out ahead as scouts might in enemy territory. They didn't go any farther than that building to the west, either. That Raff had not noticed but he was willing to accept Soriki's observation. The Comtech had a ready eye for details. He'd better pay closer attention himself. This was no time to explore the why and wherefore of his present position. So if they went no farther than that building, it would argue that the aliens themselves didn't care to go about here after nightfall. For he was certain that the isolated structure Soriki had pointed out was not the treasure house they had come to loot. The night wore on, and sometime during it, Raff fell asleep. But the two or three hours of restless, dream-filled unconsciousness was not what he needed, and he blinked in the dawn with eyes which felt as if they were filled with hot sand. In the first gray light a covey of winged things, which might or might not have been birds, arose from some roosting-place within the city, wheeled three times over the building, and then vanished out over the countryside. Raff pulled himself out of his roll, made a sketchy toilet with the preparations in a belt kit, and looked about with little favor for either the scene or his part in it. The globe, sealed as if ready for a take-off, was some distance away, but installed about halfway between it and the flitter were two of the alien warriors. Perhaps they had changed watches during the night. If they had not, they could go without sleep to an amazing degree for as Raff walked in a circle about the flyer to limber up, they watched him closely, nor did their grips on their odd weapons loosen. And he had a very clear idea that if he stepped over some invisible boundary, he would be in for trouble. When he came back to the flitter, Sariki was awake and stretching. "'Another day,' the Comtech drawled, "'and I could do with something besides field rations.' He made a face at the small tin of concentrates he had dug out of the supply compartment. "'We'd do well to be headed west,' Raff ventured. "'Now you can come in with that on the calm again,' Sariki answered with unwanted emphasis. "'The sooner I see the old girl standing on her pins in the middle distance, the better I'll feel. You know,' he looked up from his preoccupation with the ration package and gazed out over the city. This place gives me the shivers. That other town was bad enough, but at least there were people living there. Here's nothing at all. At least nothing I want to see. What about all the wonders they've promised to show us? countered Raff. Sariki grinned. And how much do we understand of their mouth-and-hand talk? Maybe they were promising us wonders. Maybe they were offering to take us to where we could have our throats cut more conveniently for them. I tell you, if I go for a walk with any of these painted faces, 
I'm going to have at least three of my fingers resting on the grip of my stun-gun, and I'd advise you to do the same, if I didn't know that you were already watching these blast-happy harpies out of the corner of your eye. Ha! Company! Oh, it's the captain! The hatch of the globe had opened, and a small party was descending the ladder, conspicuous among them the form and uniform of Captain Hobart. The aliens remained in a cluster at the foot of the ladder while the Terran commander crossed to the flitter. "'You,' he pointed to Raff, "'are to come along with us.' "'Why, sir?' "'What about me, sir?' The questions from the two at the flitter came together. "'I said that one of you had to remain by the machine. Then they said that you, in particular, must come along, Kirby.' "'But I'm the pilot.' Raff began, and then realized it was just that fact which had made the aliens attach him to the exploring party. If they believed that the Terran flitter was immobilized when he, and he alone, was not behind its controls, this was just the move they would make. But there they were wrong. Sariki might not be able to repair or service the motor, but in a pinch he could take it up and send it westward, and land it beside the spacer. Each and every man aboard the RS-10 had that much training. Now the Comtech was scowling. He had grasped the significance of that arrangement as quickly as Raff. "'How long do I wait for you, sir?' he asked in a voice which had lost its usual good-humoured drawl. And at that inquiry Captain Hobart showed signs of irritation. "'Your suspicions are not founded on facts,' he stated firmly. "'These people have displayed no signs of wanting to harm us.' and an attitude of distrust at this point might be fatal for future friendly contact. Lablet is sure that they have a highly complex society, probably advanced beyond Terran standards, and that their technical skills will be of vast benefit to us. As it happens, we have come at just the right moment in their history, when they are striving to get back on their feet after a disastrous series of wars. It is as if a group of off-world explorers had allied themselves with us after the burn-off. We can exchange information which will be of mutual benefit. "'If any off-world explorers had set down on Terra after the burn-off,' observed Sariki softly, "'they would have come up against Pax, and just how long would they have lasted?' Hobart had turned away. If he heard that half-whisper, he did not choose to acknowledge it. But the truth in the Comtech's words made an impression on Raff. A crew of aliens who had been misguided enough to seek out and try to establish friendly relations with the officials of Pax would have had a short and most unhappy shrift. If all the accounts of that dark dictatorship were true, they would have vanished from Terra, and not in their ships, either. What if something like Pax ruled here? They had no way of knowing for sure. Raff's eyes met Sariki's, and the Comtech's hand dropped to hook fingers in his belt within touching distance of his sidearm. The flitter pilot nodded. "'Kirby!' Hobart's impatient call sent him on his way. But there was some measure of relief in knowing that Sariki was left behind and that they had this slender link with escape. He had tramped the streets of that other alien city. There there had been some semblance of habitation. Here was abandonment earth drifted in dunes to half-block the lanes, and here and there climbing vines had broken down masonry, and had dislodged blocks of the paved sideways and courtyards. 
The party threaded their way from one narrow lane to another, seeming to avoid the wider open stretches of the principal thoroughfares. Raff became aware of an unpleasant odour in the air which he vaguely associated with water, and a few minutes afterwards he caught glimpses of the river between the buildings which fronted on it. Here the party turned abruptly at a right angle, heading westward once more, passing vast, blank-walled structures which might have been warehouses. One of the aliens just ahead of Raff in the line of march suddenly swung around, his weapon pointing up, and from its nose shot a beam of red-yellow light, which brought an answering shrill scream as a large winged creature came fluttering down. The killer kicked at the crumpled thing as he passed. As far as Raff could see, there had been no reason for that wanton slaying. The head of the party had reached a doorway, sealed shut by what looked like a solid slab of material. He placed both palms flat down on its surface at shoulder height, and leaned forward against it, almost as if he were whispering some secret formula. Raff watched the muscles stand up on his slender arms as he exerted strength, and then the door split in two, and his fellows helped him push the separate halves back into the wall. Lablet, Hobart, and Raff were among the last to enter. It was as if their companions had now forgotten them, for the aliens were pushing on at a pace which took them down an empty corridor at a quickening trot. The corridor ended in a ramp which did not slope in one straight reach, but curled around itself, so that in some places only the presence of a handrail, to which they all clung, kept them from losing balance. Then they gathered in a vaulted room, one of which opened a complete circle of closed doors. There was some argument among the aliens, a dispute of sorts over which of these doors was to be opened first, and the Terrans drew a little apart, unable to follow the twittering words and lightning-swift gestures. Raff tried to work out the patterns of color which swirled and looped over each door and around the walls, only to discover that too long an examination of any one band, or an attempt to trace its beginning or end, awoke a sick sensation which approached inner turmoil the longer he looked. At last he had to rest his eyes by studying the gray flooring under his boots. The aliens finally made up their minds, or else one group was able to out-argue the other, for they converged upon a door directly opposite the ramp. Once more they went through the process of unsealing the panels, while the Terrans, drawn by curiosity, were close behind them as they entered the long room beyond. Here were shelves and solid tiers along the walls, crowded with such an array of strange objects that Raff, after one mystified look, thought that it might well take months to sort them all out. In addition, long tables divided the chamber into aisles. Halfway down one of these narrow passageways the aliens had gathered in a group as silent and intent now as they had been noisy outside. Raff could see nothing to so rivet their attention but a series of scuff marks in the dust which covered the floor. But an alien, whom he recognized as the officer who had taken him to inspect the globe, moved carefully along that trail, following it to a second door, and as Raff pushed down another aisle, paralleling his course, he was conscious of a sickly, sweet, stomach-churning stench. Something was very, very dead, and not too far away. The officer must have come to the same conclusion, for he hurried to open the other door. 
Before them now was a narrow hall, broken by slit windows, near the roof, through which entered sunlight, and one such beam fully illuminated a carcass as large as that of a small elephant, or so it seemed to Raff's startled gaze. It was difficult to make out the true appearance of the creature, though guessing from the scaled strips of skin it had been reptilian, for the body had been found by scavengers and feasting had been in progress. The alien officer skirted the corpse gingerly. Raff thought that he would like to investigate the body closely, but could not force himself to that highly disagreeable task. There was a chorus of excited exclamation from the doorway as others crowded there. But the officer, having circled the carcass, turned his attention to the dusty floor again. If there had been any trail there, it was now muddled past their reading, for remnants of the grisly meal had been dragged back and forth. The alien picked his way fastidiously through the noxious debris to the end of the long room. Raff, with the same care, toured the edge of the chamber in his wake. They were out in a smaller passageway, which was taking them underground, the Terran estimated. Then there was a large space with barred cells about it, and a second corridor. The stench of the death-chamber either clung to them or was wafted from another point, and Raff gagged as an especially foul blast caught him full in the face. He kept a sharp look about him for signs of those feasters. The feast had not been finished. It might have been that their entrance into the storeroom had disturbed the scavengers, and things formidable enough to drag down that scaled horror were not foes he would choose to meet in these unlighted ways. The passage began to slope upward once more, and Raff saw a half-moon of light ahead, brilliant light which could only come from the sun. The alien was outlined there as he went out, then he himself was scuffing through sand close upon another death scene. The dead monster had had its counterparts, and here they were, sprawled out, mangled, and torn. Raff remained by the archway, for even the open air and the morning winds could not destroy the reek which seemed as deadly as a gas attack. It must have disturbed the officer, too, for he hesitated. Then with visible effort he advanced toward the hunks of flesh, casting back and forth as if to find some clue to the manner of their death. He was still so engaged when a second alien burst out of the archway, a splintered length of white held out before him as if he had made some important discovery. The officer grabbed that shaft away from him, turning it around in his hands. And though expression was hard to read on those thin features under the masking face-paint, the emotion his whole attitude expressed was surprise, tinged with unbelief, as if the object his subordinate had brought was the last he expected to find in that place. Raff longed to inspect it, but both aliens brushed by him and pattered back down the corridor the discoverer pouring forth a volume of words to which the officer listened with great intentness, and the Terran pilot had to hurry to keep up with him. Something he had seen just before he had left the arena remained in his mind, a forearm flung out from the supine body of what appeared to be the largest of the dead things, and on that forearm a bracelet of metal. Were those things pets? Watchdogs? Surely they were not intelligent beings able to forge and wear such ornaments of their own accord. And if they were watchdogs, whom did they serve? He was inclined to believe that the aliens must be their masters, that the monsters had been guardians of the treasure, perhaps. 
but dead guardians suggested a rifled treasure-house. Who and what? His mind filled with speculations and questions, Raff trotted behind the others back to the chamber where they had found the first reptile. The alien who had brought the discovery to his commander stepped gingerly through the litter and laid the white rod in a special spot, apparently the place where it had been found. At a barked order from the officer, two of the others came forward and tugged at the creature's mangled head, which had been freed from the serpent neck, rolling it over to expose the underparts. There was a broad tear there in the flesh, but Raff could see little difference between it and those left by the feasters. However, the officer, holding a strip of cloth over his nose, bent stiffly above it for a closer look, and then made some statement which set his command into a babbling clamour. Four of the lower ranks separated from the group, and, with their hand-weapons at alert, swung into action, retracing the way back toward the arena. It looked to Raff as if they now expected an attack from that direction. Under a volley of orders, the rest went back to the storeroom, and the officer, noting that Raff still lingered, waved him impatiently after them. Inside the men spread out, going from shelf to table, selecting things with a speed which suggested that they had been rehearsed in this task, and had only a limited time in which to accomplish it. Some took piles of boxes or other containers, which were so light that they could manage a half-dozen in an armload while two or three others struggled pantingly to move a single piece of weird machinery from its bed to the wheeled trolley they had brought. There was to be no lingering on this job, that was certain. End of chapter